Hello, and welcome to my podcast, where we talk to entrepreneurs about building sales in early stage businesses. I'm Phil Guest, and in this show, we focus on the critical aspects of sales and the pivotal role it plays in the success of any company. Now, running a business is a daily battle, none more so than for startups. As a founder, you operate behind enemy lines, disrupting incumbents with improved products. You live with the reality that your plans rarely survive first contact with the market, and you're constantly having to improvise, adapt, and overcome often insurmountable challenges to reach your objective, be that an exit, an IPO, or other event. You start this journey with little more than family, friends, and a few financial backers. And in this podcast, we explore the experiences of successful startup founders who have faced these challenges firsthand and succeeded. We talk about what it took to win their first customers and of sales successes and failures that shaped the way they grew their businesses to what they are today. Join us as we dive deep into the world of sales and entrepreneurship to learn from the best. Now, whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur or just starting out, this show has something for you. So buckle up and get ready to jump as we go behind startup lines. Today, we welcome Stephen Platt, CEO and founder of Riskgreen, a digital onboarding and screening platform designed to simplify and speed up customer onboarding. As a former barrister turned entrepreneur, Stephen co-founded the International Compliance Association before going on to start Riskgreen about seven years ago. Stephen, welcome. It's great to see you again. How are you? Very well, thank you, Phil, and thank you very much for the invitation. Well, it's lovely to see you again, and I uh, really appreciate you talking to us today. I thought we'd start with you sharing a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey, because you've had a very interesting transition from professional life into building your own business. Can you tell the audience about that? Yeah, certainly. I qualified as a barrister originally. I mean, actually, to go back a little bit further even than that, I was the first child on either side of my family to be educated beyond the age of 16. So qualifying as a, as a barrister was a pretty big deal. And then sort of leaving the profession, I guess, or making the conscious choice to do so was also a big thing. But as a lawyer, I specialized in financial crime prevention. I have always been fascinated by anti-money laundering and the way in which financial institutions can either sort of wittingly or unwittingly facilitate the underlying crimes that then generate the money that needs to be laundered. And I spent really the first half of my career focused on running large-scale investigations into the conduct of businesses where regulators had concerns about their conduct and where they either didn't have the expertise or the resources to conduct those inquiries, they would sort of parachute me in with my team or teams. And my job was always really just to crack the facts, to look at the control environment, look at the policies and procedures, analyze the customer files in the context of whatever the control environment was supposed to be, conduct the interviews with the people within the organization, and, and then sort of write the reports. You know, I used to say, we load the gun. And it's then for the regulators or the prosecutors to decide whether or not they want to pull the trigger. And that was a really fascinating career in the sense that it brought me into very close contact with failure, gave me a very privileged vantage point to understand the real nature of the challenge that these organizations were facing in trying to you know, bear down on financial crime risk. 
you know, it's an infinite challenge for which, you know, you're only ever going to have finite resources. And in my mid-40s, having done a few other interesting things along the way, I founded the International Compliance Association. I wrote a book. I was thinking about, you know, having a, a change. And a very good friend of mine, a chap called Simon Nixon, who founded MoneySupermarket.com, said, look, you know, you've got a great lead gen engine in a, we run a platform called KYC360, which is an AML knowledge portal, which is very popular with anti-money laundering professionals. And he said, look, it's a great lead gen engine and reg tech is the next big thing. Why don't you use your reputation in the marketplace to start a reg tech? And I decided actually to give it a go. And that's what we did. We established Risk Green around about five and a half, six years ago now. And I've been on a very, very interesting journey ever since. And it could not be more different to running a professional services firm, which is obviously what I used to do. I used to sell time, my time and other people's time. And now, of course, what you're seeking to do is you're seeking to build capital value by not selling time, but by selling licenses to use your software. So it's fascinating and it's a very, very steep learning curve. One thing you said there about just the experience you had of dealing with failure, I'm interested as to whether any of that prepared you for what life as an entrepreneur was going to be like, because we know that in building new businesses, it's an iterative process. Did you feel that that set you up for perhaps being able to deal with the pressures a bit better? Well, I had started and sold businesses before Risk Screen. So I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. And those experiences obviously have been valuable. But observing failure in other people's businesses, as well as obviously the mistakes, many mistakes that I've previously made, have been super valuable to this journey at Risk Green. I mean, the causal factors of a lot of the failure that I observed professionally were, I think, related to values. Not everybody's control environment is as good as it necessarily needs or should be. But where you also synthesize into that human factors, poor human behavior, as a consequence of a lack of alignment around values, those problems really grow exponentially. And so I've been at pains at Risk Green to try and instill a set of values and to live by a set of values that I hope will ensure that our growth is sustainable growth and that we enjoy some success in a way that allows all stakeholders to win. So values is super, super important. And, you know, I've learned that whilst I use the term, you know, you've got to try and instill values. The reality is you can't instill them. You have to live them and you have to recognize that you can't teach them, but you've got to try and grow and run a business with people who are predisposed towards that same set of values. So when you started Risk Green, was it just you or did you have a couple of people that came with you on this journey from an early start to help you define that culture? I had some great people. One person in particular has been with me on this journey from the start, Tom Devlin, our chief commercial officer. He was superb at running the investigations with me and has a great deal of technical knowledge and expertise and a very deep understanding about the nature of the challenge and the pain points that businesses have. And he's been on that journey with us since the get-go, as well as one or two other people as well. So I've been extremely well served by my colleagues. And how did it start? Did you build the product and then get out there and start talking to potential customers? Or did you already have a customer that you were solving a problem for in the beginning? 
No, we really started from ground zero. After that seminal conversation with Simon, we went off and said, right, okay, we've got all of this knowledge around why it is legacy screening solutions don't work for the financial services industry. We know what the issue is with it. And we had this really, really privileged opportunity to design a new screening solution from the ground up. And I knew that if we could do that, it would be super difficult for the behemoth sort of legacy technology businesses. It would be very difficult for them to pivot their, you know, super tankers in the direction that I wanted to go in. And so using that subject matter expertise, we designed and we then built the solution. And that was initially what we call a batch screening solution to enable businesses to batch screen their customers at volume and to do so in a way that really drives efficiencies because a lot of these solutions produce huge numbers of false positives. And as a consequence, you introduce human error, you miss true matches. So they create a lot of noise, whereas we wanted to get rid of all of the noise and really allow businesses to focus on the signal. So, you know, having built it, and this is where my background as a subject matter expert, if you like, really becomes not just a blessing, but also a problem. Because having built the product, I then went out into the market that knew me as a subject matter expert and said, hey, we've built this incredible new technology. You know, obviously you're going to buy it. And the market said, well, you know, that's really interesting, Steve. Yeah, we know and we like you and all the rest of it. But, you know, you know the square root of nothing about technology. And so why on earth would we place our trust in you? And that was a real cold shower for me because, uh, you know, I wasn't used to that. And that was the first realization that selling tech is very different to selling professional services. The shoulder was at the wheel for a long time before the first customer took a chance. And then, of course, a bit like sheep, right? Once they see a big player's jumped and you've got a decent logo, then each subsequent sale is easier. And, you know, the momentum of the wheel just begins to turn more quickly. So we had nobody. What were you doing in those early days? And you touched on it saying it took a long time. Can you give us some idea of just how long it was knocking on doors, telling everybody you had this solution to a very real problem and that they should give you a go? Yeah, it was almost, I think, before the first customer really bit. It was almost a year. And it needn't have been that long if I'd known what I was doing in terms of the way in which you should go about marketing and selling SaaS. This comes back to the curse of my background as a professional services seller, if you like. The reality is that we just did not have a proper go-to marketing strategy. We thought that because we were subject matter experts, we could sell our technology by telling people how clever we were and how whizzy the functionality was and you know how at risk they were if they didn't use our technology and of course that's not the way to sell you sell by articulating very clearly a value proposition which speaks to your prospects or to the market's pain points you don't talk about how clever you are and it took us a long time really to begin to understand that and was there a pivotal point then? Was there something that happened that suddenly you stepped back and went, we're going about this all wrong? And then did you get on the right track? Or was it, again, something that just evolved over time? 
No, I think it was iterative. I mean, I've been on a, and I remain on a very steep learning curve here. It's, this is a journey. The way in which you define a GTM strategy for a SaaS business, the way in which you build a sales org, all of these things were completely new to me. And I would not have been able to do that without you know, hiring people into the business who frankly know a great deal more about this stuff than I do and from whom I've learned a huge amount. I mean, I've also read a whole bunch of business books, obviously, and I tried to educate myself in this. But I think for a long time, I was constantly battling against what it is I knew and the comfort blanket of the knowledge that I had previously from the success that I'd enjoyed in running professional services firms. So could you talk a little bit then about that first customer? They were a pretty big player. They were certainly a big player in uh, what we call the offshore marketplace or the international financial center marketplace. And they were very well known within their particular vertical. And I think that they felt the pull of the functionality that we had to offer, but they also felt the push of the frustrations that they had with their existing solution. That must have taken some time. I mean, it wouldn't have been you setting them up, getting going. They wanted to see the impact of what they bought into. What was that period like? Was that over a relatively quick period or did, you, did it just take time to, to happen? It was relatively quick. I mean, ours is sort of no code straight out of the box. What you see in a demo is what you get. And as I say, I've always been extremely strong uh, with my colleagues that, you know, winning new business is great, but what is absolutely crucial is retention. And the key to retention is obviously making sure that what they think they've bought works and delivers for them, but also support and making sure that they don't feel like they're taken for granted. And that first customer, Stephen, had they had some form of event or critical event that forced them to make that change? Because you were a displacement cell. There was long-standing incumbents in the market. There was old ways of doing things. And you come along with a new product and you push them out. So I guess what was the driving factor at that point that got you even considered as a, an alternative? I think it was probably, I mean, it sounds incredibly immodest, but I think it was probably my reputation as the original founder of the International Compliance Association and as, I think, a figure within industry that industry thought, well, yeah, he does sort of know the subject, which is why they engaged with me in the first place. But in that particular case, the governance within that organization, I think, internally was very good in the sense that the global head of compliance genuinely had the authority to make that buying decision. Obviously, there were other personas that had to be satisfied as part of that buying journey. But ultimately, he knew that his solution was not working. He knew that we had a unique approach to screening, proprietary 3D risk-based approach to screening. And he wanted to be able to demonstrate that in the way that he screened, you know, lots and lots and lots of customers on an ongoing basis, he was deploying the risk-based approach. He just realized it made sense. So when you won that first customer and they became an advocate, and this is an important part of you were able to deliver impact very quickly because I guess you could see if it was improving onboarding of customers almost instantly, they became an advocate. How did you capture that advocacy and amplify it so that the rest of the market got to hear about the great work you were doing? Because that, I guess, was the driver to the next win and the next win and the next win. We were able to utilize the logo and we were then able 
to introduce prospects to that buyer and sponsor who was content to talk to them directly about his organization's experience of dealing with us as a business and the use of our technology. You know, this idea that you win a customer and then you go out and you amplify that and communicate it to the market. Obviously, you want to generate a market awareness that you exist. But really, alongside that, the more important strategy is that you take rifle shots. You know, if you've won customer X in vertical Y of a certain, you know, in geography Z, you identify targets that, you know, look like that and you go after them. And I think we also made this mistake and you see a lot of businesses making it. They invest a lot of time and money in growing general market awareness. It's like an elephant gun shot approach to marketing. Whereas in fact, what you need to do is that you need to be highly targeted and you've got to take rifle shots. And if you can do that with businesses that look very similar to the one that you've already sold into, that have common pain points and common challenges, then it becomes so much easier to articulate the value prop and to make the referral that you're going to get or the sales support that your existing customer is going to give you, that becomes so much more impactful. Right. And is that what you did once you won that first customer? That's right. That's what we did. And we began after a relatively short period of time, actually, to dominate that particular vertical in that particular territory. Now, in those early days, Stephen, were you the one out there doing the selling as well, or did you have a team? It was me and Tom. We were the ones. And our chief technical officer, Neil, who's been on this journey, though though it never came naturally to Neil, he just wanted to be left alone behind a bank of, of screens to do what he does so well. We would roll him out to help us with demos. Everybody's shoulder was at the sales wheel. And what was the point of when you started to grow a team then? I recruited very early on a guy who's still with us, a chap called Mark Cobby, who when he joined us knew nothing about software sales and nor did he know anything about financial crime. But I recognized in Mark that one thing he did have was a real internal motor and he was also a good communicator. And he quickly became a really a very successful tactical seller, uh, selling deals at lower value at the time, but at high volume. And it's been fascinating to actually see him on the journey since because you know, the average deal size of the business that he writes now is sort of several hundred times larger than it was when he started with us. And so Mark was the first um, and we've built it out now. I, I think there are about 12 or 13 people within the sales team at this present moment in time. As the business builds momentum, as you win more of these customers, as the technology, the product improves and the organization grows, you're a big sales team now. What are some of the challenges you've faced as you reach that point where you transition truly from founder-led sales now to building a sales organization? Yeah, I mean, look, the challenges are legion, right? But some of the biggest ones that come to mind and that I would really sort of counsel any other founders on would be being alive to the very real danger that sellers are overselling. Obviously, everybody wants to make their number, but you can't write checks, you can't bank, right? If you sell something to a customer, in the process, you create an expectation gap. There are going to be a whole bunch of consequences that flow from that. You might make your quarter or your annual number, you know, and in the short term, that's great. 
but there's going to be a long tail that results from that. And one of the, quite apart from the commercial aspects that arise in that customer supplier relationship, the most damaging long tail aspect of it is the impact that it has on your own product development roadmap. Because if you've sold into a big customer and you've promised them that X and Y and Z functionality is going to be coming down the tracks in the next three, six, 12 months, that's the basis upon which they've contracted with you. And then they come back and say, like what we've got, but we want it actually to do what it does in a different way. The danger at that point is that you'll do anything to maintain that relationship. And that can have a massive impact on your other customers because it knocks whatever plans you have in place, you know, on the product development roadmap. So there are serious dangers in overselling and you can't be exposed to every telephone conversation that is had between a seller and a prospect. Of course you can't. But what you can do is that you can incentivize sellers not to oversell and you can culturally always emphasize that unless there is real product customer fit they should walk away from the conversation what have you found to be the most effective way to incentivize them obviously once you build a bit of a critical mass of sellers you find that if they're good they're competitive and i've always been loath to pitch people against one another because that's not healthy i saw some really negative consequences flowing from that kind of technique in organizations that I used to investigate. So you want to be careful about that. But nevertheless, everybody likes to be top dog. So if you can introduce prizes for people who, for example, exceed their number by the highest percentage and try and instill a set of behaviors throughout the team in which that, if you like, is celebrated by everybody. I found that to be quite an interesting technique. But just as you've got to offer incentives for people to outperform, you also need to think about how you can disincentivize the wrong behaviors. So if somebody oversells and that causes massive issues for you as an organization, there have to be consequences that flow from that. So it's not all about just the incentivizing the upside. Did you divide up the territories in some way? Did you think geographically, product set, customer set, customer size, did that help just by dividing that up? Yes, we did. We divided up between territories and also verticals. We don't divide it up by product because ours is a sort of single streamlined SaaS platform. And it really, the value prop is largely around the fact that you can seamlessly onboard and then screen and then do perpetual KYC. And so the sellers have got to be able to talk about the the functionality of all of the aspects of the platform. So on territories and verticals, yeah, we divvy it up. And that helps. I mean, we've obviously been operating some pretty difficult times. I can't imagine it's all been smooth sailing for you, whether that was COVID and the way in which you had to change operations or even today because this is what beginning of 2023 and it's a pretty uncertain market that we're operating in what impact is that having on the motivation of your sales team and my question really is what do you do to make sure that they stay on it and encouraged that this will pass and that they should keep pushing forward 
I have to tell you that COVID and the cost of living crisis, neither of those things have sort of adversely impacted our business in some ways. And one hesitates to say this, COVID was a good thing for our business because it crystallized in the minds of a lot of our targets that the face-to-face manner in which they used to onboard customers was no longer viable, right? They had to continue to onboard or KYC refresh existing customers in a remote but compliant way. So that, I think, really accelerated the appetite of the market for remote onboarding and electronic ID and verification technology. And then the second piece, the sort of cost of living crisis piece, and everybody's feeling the squeeze, I think just has encouraged businesses to really think about how they can identify efficiencies in their compliance processes. Can they become more compliant with less because there is so much cost pressure? And again, you know, that's great for us because that's precisely what we do. We say, you know, we're on a mission to bear down on financial crime by offering solutions that create massive operational efficiencies. And if you go out and you try and sell a really brilliant AML solution, that is a solution that's going to appeal to the global head of risk or compliance or the money laundering compliance officer. But is it going to appeal to the FD? Is it going to appeal to the board? What we recognized is that if you can demonstrate huge operational efficiencies and cost savings, as well as demonstrating that you're bearing down more effectively on financial crime prevention, then you're offering something to everybody, right? Everybody's a winner. So if you were going to do it all again, if you were going to restart this in a new business, specifically around the go-to-market and the sales, what would you do differently? I probably have got you involved earlier in the journey. I mean, one of the seminal moments in our journey was meeting you and having the ability to bring into the business your phenomenal skill set without finding a huge sum of money to bring somebody like you in as a full-time employee, which we would never have been able to do at that moment in time. But we were able to leverage your skills and you, I think, were a force multiplier in organizing our sales team in getting them aligned, in keeping them honest around their pipe and in the quality of the reporting that you were able to produce, which enabled us to make you know, really important strategic decisions. Because you had done some of this with your work with the Compliance Association. Was KYC 360, the AML portal, did that exist before Risk Green or was that something that was born out of building Risk Green? No, it existed beforehand. It was a a platform that we started some time ago that was in many ways a bit of an ego play for me because it allowed me a platform to communicate my subject matter expertise in my former career. And I also believed that it was important for compliance professionals to have a sort of safe space on which they could exchange ideas, get premium information that, you know, pertain to their roles. And it was great. It's been a very good lead gen engine for us. And it's got a lot of brand recognition around the world. So we were very lucky with that. And that's an important part of this, isn't it? About building momentum behind the content that you produce. I always felt that that was a very powerful tool that you had that even when we worked together, it wasn't perhaps working as hard as it could have done. But it's such an important part or reason that you did it, I suppose, was that it was for the professionals and it was for the industry. It wasn't necessarily to sell more risk green subscriptions, but it then started to play that role because you were helping educate the market. 
Exactly. Exactly. I've always been pretty passionate about educating the market and, you know, getting the market to realize that financial crime prevention is a professional discipline in its own right. And it needs to be accorded that that respect. Okay, so let's jump on. We're going to wrap up the conversation now. And I've got a few quick fire questions. These are a little bit fun. They're a little bit geared toward the military analogy here. I think I know the answer to the first one which was going to be, when it comes to getting the attention of a prospective customer, what works best, sniper fire or artillery barrage? <laughs> no, undoubtedly sniper fire. Sniper fire, great. What's the best way to establish a beachhead when you're opening a new market or a new prospect category? Do you have a, like a go-to strategy that helps you with that initial beachhead? That's a brilliant that. question. I think that... One tactic that has worked very well for us is to utilize our subject matter expertise around education. So going into a territory and running workshops that you know are going to appeal to the pain points that businesses within that territory are experiencing. So for example, Malta is a really good example of a jurisdiction where we established a beachhead because we knew Malta had been greylisted by the Financial Action Task Force or was in danger of being greylisted. So the license holders were going to be coming under a lot of heat from the regulator and they were going to be more receptive to our kind of message. So we went in, we created a conference we invited everybody. Why would you not want to go to that? Everybody wants free, good quality CPD. We gave them a lot of value add. They sat there and thought, God, these people really know what they're talking about and their technology looks great. And then what was born out of that were a whole bunch of very interesting conversations that, you know, over time we qualified and then we converted a lot of them. So that is an example of a tactic that we've used to establish a beachhead. How important is it to know your enemy? And by that, I mean the competition. It's very important. I mean, look, everybody and everything in life defines itself by reference to what it's against, right? It's not very healthy, but it's true. In order to really understand the unique place that you have in the market, you've got to understand what else is on offer because you're inevitably going to be asked, well, how are you any different from X or Y or Z? So yes, understanding the enemy is pretty important. When you think of logistics, what's essential that you keep supplying to the sales team or the sales keep the sales machine going? Product knowledge and not just, you know, look at this amazing new functionality, but look at what this incredible new functionality can do in terms of value add for the customer. That is the most important thing you can do, I think, in terms of feeding your sales team. That together with celebrating success and celebrating momentum. Everybody wants momentum, right? If you haven't got momentum in a sales or people begin to ask questions, you know, what's going on here within this organization and so on. And then they start to look around and the rot begins to set in. So those two things are really important. I haven't stopped learning. I'm learning from all sorts of people every day through all sorts of medium. And that, I think, is the secret to sales success. If you invest in yourself you'll have a very, very lucrative career. Last question, and you kind of already answered it, but I was going to ask you, what's the best form of R&R to replenish the energy of a sales team that you found works? <laughs> Goodness me. I'm not sure I'm really that 
well qualified to answer that question. I mean, we do try and enjoy some sort of quality time together. We have a summer get two days, summer get together. We always have sales training events every quarter, which are followed by socials. And they're great R&R events. I guess you'd have to ask the guys, you know, and the girls what they get out of them, but it seems to work. Stephen, fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's great to catch up and just really interesting to hear your story. And I'm sure a lot of founders listening to this will take a lot away from everything you said about the importance of hiring for culture in the early days, the importance of thinking about value proposition earlier in your go-to-market, and perhaps not being so stuck with that. You've been willing to change once you get feedback from the market and be able to change direction. And some of the stories that you've shared and things that you do differently, I mean, they're fascinating insights. So a huge, huge thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, likewise, Phil, and it's great to see you again. Thanks for the opportunity. So there you have it. Stephen has given us some fantastic insights to how he built Risk Green and some of the challenges that he faced as he pulled this together. Some really important lessons there for us. We'll be back with more insights from founders who have built their sales organizations and succeeded in growing their businesses. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the channel. More of this to come. If you know anybody else who has an interesting story, send it my way. In the meantime, have a great week. And thanks very much for your attention. Bye for now.